My name is Ben Cuthbert, and I'm an associate pastor here at South. I don't know if it was mentioned, but our senior pastor, Don Dennis, is away on vacation, so it's a real privilege, honestly, to open God's Word and to hopefully faithfully proclaim it to you today. And invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6 with me, specifically at verse 45, Mark 6, 45. And as Pastor Don's away, we've been continuing in our series, Simply Jesus, which is a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And the more I've thought about it, Mark's succinct and accurate description of Jesus provides an answer to a very important question. And that question is, who is Jesus? We think that sounds like a simple question, but it's really a profoundly important question. Who is Jesus? What is identity? If we do not get Jesus' identity right, if we don't respond rightly to him, there are severe problems. And so Mark helps us in his brief accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and eventually his death and his resurrection, understand who Jesus really is. Not the Jesus of urban legend or secular philosophy or mainstream media or popular culture, but the real Jesus, the one who walked on this earth among men. And so we look again to Mark today in chapter 6, verse 45, to catch yet another glimpse of Jesus. We've already seen Jesus calling disciples from the outset of his ministry, teaching the masses, healing the sick, casting out demons, and much, much more. Just last week, Pastor Doug shared with us the feeding of the 5,000 from Mark chapter 6. And we saw Jesus miraculously provide a satisfying meal for not just 5,000 people, that's just the men. But as many as 10, 15, some Bible commentators say 20,000 people. And they were satisfied with this meal and there were leftovers. Jesus is performing miraculous deeds and yet it seems that the crowds and even his closest disciples still fail to understand who Jesus really is and what the right response to him might be. And so as we look at this next episode, the one that immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000, I truly think we catch our best glimpse of Jesus and his real identity that we have for the whole book of Mark thus far. Things are beginning to crystallize. And so I want you to listen closely as I read from Mark 6.45, remembering that this is the eyewitness account of Peter recorded by the pen of Mark, sometimes called John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. And so hear this account from Mark 6, 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, 
and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So who is Jesus, according to this famous account? Well, first, we see that Jesus is authoritative, that Jesus is in charge, that he is in control, and we see that especially in verses 45 and 46. Verse 45 tells us that he made his disciples get into the boat. Now, these disciples are probably his, his closest followers, the 12, and he makes them, he compels them, he forces them to get into the boat which is just a reminder that Jesus is in charge. There is an authority about Jesus that can't be missed. And it seems to me, from the retelling of the account, that they were obedient to his authoritative command, that they do get in the boat and head out on a short trip from the remote place where he fed the 5,000 to a little town called Bethsaida, on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> it reminds me of the authority that Jesus exhibited. <coughs> Excuse me. The authority that Jesus exhibited when he first called the disciples. They were fishermen. They were engaged in their own livelihood and their family. Taking after you. <coughs> they were there when Jesus first called them, engaged in their own livelihood, and when he called, they followed. There is an authority about Jesus that when he says jump, <coughs> they say how high. And while he is shipping off the disciples, while they're departing across the sea, notice that Jesus is the one who dismisses the crowd. And that's just a subtle reminder that Jesus has just been the ultimate host at an unlikely but extravagantly fulfilling feast in a remote place. He was the one who took those five loaves and two fishes and fed the masses. And there were leftovers. And you have to imagine that there was something electric about that night to have experienced this miraculous feeding. And Jesus, almost like a parent who dismisses his children from the table, 
he dismisses the crowd. He says it's time to go home. Perhaps you're wondering, like I was wondering, why such an abrupt and immediate dismissal? It says in verse 45 that immediately Jesus directs the disciples to depart and he dismisses the crowd. Why not hang around? The problem that they had earlier on when everyone was hungry has been met. They're satisfied. Why not enjoy it? But we need to look at the parallel account of this passage in the Gospel of John to really help understand why Jesus might have directed them in such an immediate fashion. You don't need to turn there, but in John chapter 6, we learn that the crowds there that day were ready to force Jesus to be king. They were going to make him king by force. They had full bellies, and they were envisioning some sort of messianic revolution where Jesus is going to come and take on the Romans, and they were ready to crown him king right then and there. But Jesus is authoritative even in revealing his own identity. He's authoritative in the timing of the revelation of his own identity. And so immediately he says, it's time to go, disciples, and it's time to go crowd. My identity as king will need to wait. But I want us also to say that not only is Jesus authoritative in his dismissal of the crowds and the departure of the disciples, he is authoritative in a dependent state. Meaning he is dependent on the Father. Because what does he do when he gets alone, finally alone, that peace and quiet that he was seeking way back in verse 31 when he wanted to go to a quiet place? He goes to that quiet place to pray. He depends on the Father. And Bible commentators have noticed there are only three times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is praying in a solitary place. And each of those times follows a big dramatic event where Jesus' identity is sort of in crisis. And so Jesus withdraws and takes time to pray. He did it back in chapter 1 after performing some miracles and the public was talking about him. He withdrew to pray in dependence on the Father. Here he does it in chapter 6. And if we fast forward it to the Garden of Gethsemane, in chapter 14, we would see Jesus, just days after the triumphal entry, pausing to pray, to maintain his commitment, to fulfill the plan that the Father had for him. A plan that had been devised before the foundations of the world. Jesus is authoritative, yes. And he's authoritative in dependence upon the Father. Keep in mind, it's the Father who said to this son, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And so, as an obedient son, Jesus doesn't give in to the crowds. He stays the course. He sticks with the plan. And he has his own, <coughs> he has his own plan to reveal himself to the disciples that night. In fact, I think he has orchestrated this entire episode to show them 
who he really is. He is authoritative, and as you look at their predicament, he is also aware. Look at verses 47 and 48. Jesus is aware of the disciples and their difficulty. In verse 48, he sees them. Though he's physically removed from them, he sees them toiling in anguish as they strain on their oars, rowing into a headwind in the wee hours of the morning. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6 a.m. And Jesus is up on the hillside. And by moonlight from his sort of stadium seating vantage point, he sees the disciples down there. And he is aware that they are struggling. They're in painful anguish because they can't make progress even though this boat ride was probably only two to four miles. It should have been easy for seasoned fishermen, but it was exceedingly difficult because they're rowing into a headwind. Can you feel the pain of the disciples at least a little bit? I was on a bike ride a week or so ago on a windy, cloudy, rainy day on the river trail, and the wind was just blowing in my face. I had to downshift the first gear just to keep moving. It was painful. And from my days as a college rower, I can remember straining at the oars, and when there was a headwind, it was much more difficult than riding a bike, because when you're on the water, you're dealing not just with the wind, but with the waves that the wind creates, and you get disoriented so easily. It's difficult, and they're straining and making no progress, and Jesus sees them. He's aware. But he's aware that the wind is not their greatest problem. The wind is not their greatest problem. Their greatest problem is that they are temporarily apart from his presence. See how verse 47 puts it? Jesus is alone on the land. There, in the middle of the sea, middle of the lake, on a boat. And that's just a sort of a visual reminder that when we are not in the presence of Jesus, when they are not in the presence of Jesus, chaos ensues. Difficulty and toil and anguish ensues when we're without the presence of Jesus. He is their greatest need. His presence is their greatest need. And so it seems like he has orchestrated this account to show them a little bit about himself to reveal a little bit more about his real identity. And he does this by walking on the lake and passing by them. Passing by them. It seems kind of strange to me. And to be honest, when I started studying this passage and reading it about a week ago, I thought it seemed a bit cruel of Jesus that he would just pass by them. That he would take this leisurely stroll on the waves and kind of pass by waving, laughing at them as they strain at the oars. What is this pass by them all about? Is it really cruel and inconsiderate? As I asked myself this over and over during my reading, I realized I'm reading this phrase, pass by them, all wrong. What Jesus was intending to do was to pass by in front of them so that they could get a glimpse of him in all his water-walking glory. He wants to be seen because he knows 
that he is their greatest need. In fact, he wants to pass by them in much the same way that the Lord's glory passed by Moses when Moses hid in the cleft of the rock. You remember that? Moses requested to see God's glory. And the Lord said, you can't handle my glory. I'm too holy. I'm too great. But if you hide in the cleft of the rock, my glory will pass by you. Perhaps that's what Jesus is doing here. Passing by them so that they can see him in all his glory. It's like like a flyover at a parade or an athletic event. You know, when a, a plane swoops down so low that you can feel the rumble of its engines in your chest. You can see the speed and the size of that aircraft and you're just struck by its glory and its greatness. Jesus is orchestrating that sort of event as he passes by them. And he does it by miraculously walking on water. But then it seems that even his walking on water is ineffective because they look at this figure walking on water and they don't see Jesus. They see ghosts. We've said before that the sea, that water in the ancient Hebrew world is a a sign, a symbol of of evil, of chaos, of the place that you can't control. Some commentators have suggested that they didn't just see a ghost, they thought they saw a sea demon of some sort. Who knows what this thing is? We're already toiling on the oar and now we've got a sea demon coming after us. So I'm starting to wonder if Jesus' plan is really going to work. Are they really going to see him for who he is? Well, when he passes by and he's walking on water and they're terrified that they've seen a ghost, we begin to see that it's not ineffective at all because when Jesus speaks, things really begin to happen. Jesus speaks these Gracious, comforting, helpful words in verse 50. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. In the midst of the storm, he says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. What I think we begin to see in this account is that not only is Jesus authoritative, Not only is he aware, but with his words and his actions, we begin to see that Jesus is God. Jesus is divine, and his words and his actions right here prove it. So let's look at this carefully. Jesus' words in verse 50 include this little sentence, It is I. It is I. Now think about this for a moment. Those words are coming coming from a figure that the disciples suppose is a ghost. Maybe even a sea demon. It is I. These words are coming to them in the midst of a windstorm with crashing waves and grunting oarsmen. And they hear, it is I. Now, is that really very helpful? I'm thinking to myself, that's not helpful. Even if I know Jesus' voice perfectly, 
How do I know it's him? It'd been much better if he said, it's me, Jesus. Oh, I don't need to be afraid. It's, it's Jesus who's telling us to take courage and not be afraid. He's the one who calmed the storm back in Mark 4. I'm good. But he doesn't say his name. He just says, it is I. So how is that helpful? Well, it's more than helpful, friends. Because it is I is something much more than it's me, Jesus. Do you remember when Moses was called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? You remember that? He was a bit fearful that the Israelites would actually follow him. And why wouldn't he be? After all, he was raised in Pharaoh's household. He had killed an Israelite. And he had fled to Midian where he had been living the last 40 years. So if I were Moses, I wouldn't expect the Israelites to follow me either. So he asks God in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. I am who I am. Now let's think about Jesus' self-identification again. Jesus said, it is I which is just another way of saying, I am. In fact, a perfectly legitimate translation of that little phrase is, I am. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's using his words to share with them his real identity. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is God. And he's there in their midst, walking on water. And if the words weren't enough to point to his deity, the actions certainly should be. Because he's already walking on water. Who does that? Who walks on water? No one walks on water, right? That's why, as Pastor Doug said last week when he gave us sort of a sneak peek of this, liberal scholars for years have tried to figure out a way to explain this walking on water. Perhaps it was some sort of optical illusion. The waves were so high, the disciples looked across them. Jesus is really walking on shore. Or, or maybe a sandbar in the middle of the lake. No. Jesus is walking on water because Jesus is God. And according to Job chapter 9, verse 8, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus is God, and he is treading on the waves of the Sea of Galilee in all his glory, passing by for them to see. And what happens when he takes further action after speaking to them these gracious words of his self-identity? He steps into the boat. And the wind dies down. Which is a reminder that Jesus' presence brings peace. It brings calm 
It brings comfort. It brings rescue. It reminds me that God sent his presence to dwell among the Israelites as he led them out of Egypt with twin pillars, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And those pillars led the people through the Red Sea on dry ground. It was his presence that kept them safe. It was nothing that the Israelites did that got them out of Egypt. The Lord led them with his presence. And here Jesus' presence brings peace and calm in the midst of a windstorm. Jesus speaks like God, and Jesus acts like God because Jesus is God. So how do they respond? Do they get it? Do they understand his identity? Do they realize that he's authoritative and that he's aware of their situation? Do they realize that he is God? And sadly, according to verses 51 and 52, they don't seem to get it. It says at the end of verse 51 that they were completely amazed, which at a glance feels like a compliment. We like to say things are amazing. I was amazed by that, and we consider that a compliment. But here, they're completely amazed, and the context tells us that this sort of amazement is more like astonishment or confusion or even that they are just confounded. And what's the reasoning that behind their confusion? End of verse 52. Their hearts are hard. They still don't understand what happened back on the hillside in the feeding of the 5,000. They don't get it about the loaves because they don't have faith. To have a hard heart is to lack in belief, trust, faith. And at this point, they're still hard-hearted. Now, to say that the disciples of all people are hard-hearted puts them in some pretty poor company, biblically speaking. Because Pharaoh hardened his heart toward the Lord and kept God's people from going. King Nebuchadnezzar is described as hard-hearted. And he captured God's people, Israel, and took them into captivity. So this is no compliment. This is an indictment on the disciples themselves. They don't believe in Jesus and who he really is. At best, they've got a little faith. So what are we supposed to do with this passage? How are we supposed to view the disciples? Well, we could just scoff at them. And that's what we sometimes do. We, we put it all together with our hindsight 2020 and our cross-references of Bible, and we say, how could you not get it? It is I, I am, come on. He's walking on water, he's God. And we scoff. But friends, I think that would be terribly arrogant of us. Because who knows that we might not have responded in the exact same way that day. I think that the reason the Lord brought Mark to record it in this way is so that it would be a wake-up call for us, a warning sign for us, to keep us from being hard-hearted. After all, 
It's not just the pagans in the Bible who are hard-hearted. It's not just Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar that are hard-hearted. The Israelites themselves are called hard-hearted. You heard about it today in the call to worship that Pastor Doug read from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, the psalmist says some decades or probably centuries later, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, even though they had seen what I did. The Israelites had seen the Lord in all His glory lead them with powerful plagues out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, and then they doubted that He would provide for them in the wilderness. In fact, they tested and tried Him in their unbelief. And the psalmist says, don't be like your spiritual ancestors. Don't harden your heart. If you hear His voice, if you hear His voice today, do not harden your heart. Hebrews 3.15 uses that same text in an effort to encourage professing Christians to persevere in the faith. Don't stop trusting in the Lord. Don't stop believing. So who's to say if the Israelites struggled with hard-heartedness that people right here in this room might not struggle with hard-heartedness? Lack of faith. In fact, I, I'd venture to say that all of us, to one degree or another, are hard-hearted. And we need to wake up. We need to ask the Lord to soften our hearts so that we might respond in right faith to Jesus. So for the sake of helping you examine your own heart today, I want to suggest that there are two basic types of hard-hearted. There's the rebelliously hard-hearted and there is the self-righteous hard-hearted. Rebellious and self-righteous. Which do you tend toward? Some of us today are rebelliously hard-hearted. We despise the idea of yielding in allegiance to anyone. We call the shots in our lives. We are independent and proud of it. And no one can tell us what to do, not even God himself. We sort of dismiss the commands of the Bible, keep them at arm's length, because we can run our lives better than God can run our lives for us. That's rebellion. And if that describes you, even just a bit of you, then this glorious picture of Jesus in Mark 6 ought to be a wake-up call. Jesus, as it were, has passed by you. You've seen Him in all of His water walking and I am talking glory. Will you recognize that there is a God, that Jesus is His name, and that He is due your allegiance, your trust? Because the same power that Jesus used that it enabled him to walk on that water that same power will be used to punish those who remain in willful defiance to him he's a just god he's a righteous judge and it would be dangerously foolish to remain in rebellion to him 
But today, you've heard his voice. You've seen him. Don't harden your heart. Today, he offers pardon to anyone and everyone who will turn from their rebellious ways, repent of those ways, and trust in him. Have you turned from sin and trusted Jesus? Have you been converted? Have you been saved? You know you're forgiven. Give up your rebellious ways. Don't live in that hard-hearted state any longer. If you want to speak to me about that, call me or email me this week. Come speak to a prayer partner after the service. Ask a Christian friend what it really means to be a Christian. But don't. Remain hard-hearted. Don't continue this rebellion. Others of us today are self-righteously hard-hearted. These are people like me. We aren't bold enough to rebel. (laughs) We're goody-two-shoes. We like to play by the rules. But we live dangerously in a different sort of way. We are proud enough to think that we could actually earn our right standing before God. We're bold enough to think that we don't need God's forgiveness. That's dangerous too, isn't it? The hard-hearted Pharisees of Jesus' day, they live squeaky clean moral lives. But they're described as stubborn of heart or distant of heart. They did the right thing in many ways, but they had no warmth in their heart for Jesus. They had no real need for Jesus. That's the tragedy for them. They scoffed at the rebels who were coming repentance while they remained in their self-righteous state. Hard-hearted as ever. So today is the day of salvation for the self-righteous too. To to turn from that hard-hearted, grace-denying lifestyle to quit living sort of a skin-deep righteousness and go to a place of deeper devotion, of heartfelt trust in Jesus. And whether you tend toward sort of a rebellion or a self-righteousness, How will you know that you're making progress? How will you know that you're not remaining in a hard-hearted state? Well, Pastor Doug shared with me and the ministry staff a quote from Dallas Willard last week that I think captures this all and brings it all to a great summary. It describes how one knows that they have truly believed. And Willard says it this way, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. We believe something when we act as if it were true. So it's not, I believe in Jesus. That's easy to say. It's not even, I believe I believe in Jesus. No. I act 
as if I believe in Jesus. My actions of obedience to the true Jesus are an expression of my undying faith in him. That's what we're aiming for, friends. A real devotion, a real soft-hearted trust and allegiance to Jesus. Jesus, who is authoritative and aware. Jesus, who is God. Let's pray. Lord God, send your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to drive these truths about your Son into our hearts so that we might be changed from the inside out and be more faith-filled, obedient followers of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Let's stand together.